Well, hey, good morning, everybody. Good to see all of you guys. Um, this is your first time here uh, at Hill City. My name is John Wagler. I'm part of this team here. And uh, just grateful um, that you decided to spend a portion of your Sunday here. Um, we really do hope and pray um, that Hill City becomes a place that you can call home uh, to connect with a deeper uh, connection with, with Jesus and uh, with other people as well. And so just over here. Um, before we get into some of the sermon content, I want to... Uh, you guys have to participate in today's sermon. We're going to do a little interactive thing at a couple of different moments, all right? So um, really, the whole illustration hinges on you guys. So if this bombs, it's not my fault. Um, it's your fault. And so um, up on the, I want you guys to go here um, to menti.com, and then you'll see the code. And we're not going to do this just yet. Um, we're going to, uh, about midway through the sermon, I'm going to ask you guys one question, and towards the end, I'm going to ask you a second question, all right? So you can keep your phones out, and um, uh, you'll know when to participate, because I want you guys to see something um, as you guys participate together in uh, a couple of the questions. Um, it's not a quiz. It's not even, it's nothing funny. It's, it'll hopefully be meaningful, um, I hope. And, um, and so we'll keep it up there for a minute. But we're in this series um, called Copy and Paste, um, which is this whole kind of premise that we're looking at the reality that we're, we're imaging something, like we're downloading something and pasting it onto our lives. And, um, and when we begin to, to kind of think this through, uh, you know, one of the phrases that you see in, in your Bible is this idea of what does it mean to image God? And so last week we kind of kicked it off and started talking about like in Genesis chapter one, what does it actually mean to image God? Like what are some of the, the realities of the creation story? And so we talked about how in the creation story, um, it's more important to view it uh, in terms of functioning and order than necessarily what was created. That there's this reality of, man, God ordered things in, in certain ways to function in a certain manner uh, so that his people could image him well, so that um, people would begin to understand the realities of what it means to be connected to the presence of God. And in the midst of that, there's this deep relational thing that begins to happen. And so to image God is something very significant. And so we looked at uh, Genesis chapter one, and I'm just gonna read that one little section over to you guys uh, again. It says this, then God said, let us make mankind in our image, uh, in our likeness, so that they may rule, meaning like you, you have a role in this. Like if you're imaging God, that there's something that we have responsibility for, to rule over the fish and the sea and the birds and the sky and over the livestock and all the wild animals, over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So when you begin to see this, it's like, okay, we see the functionality and the ordering of, of the creation story and what it was supposed to be. And, uh, and then we see like, okay, hold on a second. Then, then every single human being that has ever been born or ever will be born uh, has a role in being made in the image of God. You have uh, dignity because you're, you're made in the image of God. That there's a responsibility that goes along with this to be made in the image of God and the main part of what we talked about last week is in order to have a healthy view of ourselves, we've got to understand this part. In order to have like a really healthy life, we've got to understand uh, the purpose of our lives and what it means to image God. And so the reality is, is the language that's used in the creation story for uh, Adam and Eve and for all humanity is that we're supposed to be representatives of God's kingdom. That ultimately, ultimately uh, for every person on the face of this planet currently that has been or that will be, your ultimate goal and your ultimate purpose is to be representative of the kingdom of God. 
And so um, sometimes we forget that part, don't we? We get lost in it and we start choosing another way to go, which is what we'll talk about today. Um, but ultimately, we're supposed to represent uh, the kingdom of God and have this deep connection to him. And then what ends up happening as we begin to image God, we start uh, appreciating the beauty. Some of the, the creation elements that you begin to see uh, is this reality of, of appreciating the beauty of the creator. Uh, have you guys ever done that? Have you ever like sat in nature? Right? Like, I know we can, like, can miss out on this because we, we and we think, um, you know, what's also interesting about beauty is, like, here's where you know you're a little disconnected from God. You ready? That you have to go somewhere else to experience beauty. <laughs> Did you know that? Like, when people are like, you know what? It's always you got to go out west. I was like, you know what? We got to go out west. And it's like, or... Maybe there's beauty in front of us, right? And, and I think it's a good indicator. If you always feel like you need to escape to experience the beauty of God, that means that you're disconnected from him on a daily basis. Here's why. Sitting in this room right now, you can look around and you can see a bunch of image makers. So every single person in this room is being made in the image of God. And so with that, there's dignity. With that, there's a beauty that goes along with that. So even like in this moment today, if you haven't appreciated it, you, hopefully you will right now, I'm like, this is a God-given, beautiful moment. And so you look at a gathering like this, and it's like, whoa, I can appreciate the beauty of God. Because what beauty does, and when we understand this element of, of being a deep connection with God in this way, you start seeing it all around you, the, the beauty of God. You start seeing it more frequently. You start seeing it in people. And here's what happens when you start appreciating the beauty. It leads you to wonder. And when that wonder starts building inside of us, we start realizing we're part of this creative narrative. And when we start realizing we're part of this creative narrative, what it leads us to is worship of God. And so there's this link that ends up happening with when we're imaging God in the right way, that there, there's an appreciation of beauty. There's building of our wonder. Um, there's a reality of we're, we're tapped in this creative narrative of humanity, and it leads us to worship uh, the creator. This is both personal and corporate. Now, this was like, this kind of language was, again, foreign to all other ancient civilizations. Um, as I said last week, like, all ancient civilizations had a creation story. They had a flood story. They had kind of a, the human condition part uh, of the story as well. And so when uh, the Bible and the writers of the Bible began to, to display this as the creation story and the reason that we image God, it was different. It was so different than what any other civilization was talking about because they thought they always uh, imaged humanity, that the, that the purpose was to image the king. And so if an empire would come around, like the Babylonian Empire, let's say, and they were ruling over everything, they would, they would, they would have these images. And, and one of the images is, would look something like this. It's like the Lamassu statue, uh, this one on your right. Um, and they would have the image of a king, uh, and it would look like the king, but they would give him, like, creatured body because there was something that was godlike about that. It was to image the creative things that we see around this. And so they would image these things and they would put them everywhere. And so when they would encounter uh, an image or a statue like this, they would say, oh, this is who we're supposed to image. This is whose authority we are under. And we're under this king. And it was just our people in the empire. But what's so different about Genesis and the writing of the Bible on the front end is like, no, 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 no. It's like all humans are image bearers, not just people in just an empire. And we don't image a king or a creative thing. We image the creator. That's a wildly different way to, be, to see ourselves as image bearers. 
That's a completely different way to see our lives. That we're not trying to image something of this world or something that was created, that we begin to image the creator. And that changes, and all of a sudden we start saying like, oh, hold on a second. I'm supposed to represent that. That's like at the essence of my life. And here's the thing. Um, you guys actually, we, we, we all experience it in this manner. When we are imaging God correctly, we experience like a fruitfulness in a life. When we are kind of imaging the, the things that God wants us to image, we experience those life-giving moments. And you could name them, and you could go through and name all of them in your own life. But you, you've gotten glimpses of it. And so, but we also understand, like, how many guys have made mistakes? Yeah, how, uh, regrets. Yeah, right? And, and in those moments, and you weren't imaging God in the right way, you also feel that. And so it's like, okay, then we do get little glimpses of what, who we're supposed to be and how we're supposed to be. And that becomes uh, critical in this. And so we're supposed to be, to be fully human is to image God and not the world. And so we won't experience the fullness of life uh, until we image um, how everything is supposed to function. And so um, that's what we're kind of the basis of what we're building everything off of. And so you, you get this story and we go through all the creation story and all the day ones and day twos and we're kind of relating all those things. And it's like, does this story end there? And of course, the answer is no. The Bible doesn't just leave us hanging there. It, it continues on. So it's, it, oh, I'm stuck here. There we go. So here's what ends up happening. You got Adam and you got Eve. Here we go, guys. My favorite thing to draw. All right, so they're in the garden and they're in this tree, right? And remember, we talked about this last week that, in, that God tells them, I'm going to give you some boundaries. And that one of the ways that we begin to image God is to appreciate the boundaries that God gives us because that's where we have the most freedom. And so he says, um, hey, don't eat. Do you remember what the tree was called? Of what? Right? No, you, could, no you, tree of life you're good with. Remember he said, do, you can't eat from the tree of what? Good and evil, right? Good and evil. And, and he says, like, just don't do that. Don't, don't, don't try and be me, basically. Don't try and, and, and be the owners of good and evil. I'm gonna, I will let you know what, and give you the wisdom of what good and evil is, but you cannot dictate what good and evil is. Only God can do that. And then what ends up happening, what, is, you know, this, this serpent comes along, right? And it, yeah, that's a serpent of some kind. That's his tongue, all right? And the serpent comes along, and the serpent comes along, and he, and he says, he did, God didn't really say that. He, he's trying to keep something from you. And he's trying to keep, like, so you don't know the things that he knows, but, but you could if you want to. And the serpent will always offer us a shortcut. Rather than, rather than kind of buying into and being willing to be like, no, no, I want to image God, the serpent will say, no, here's a little shortcut, and you can get to the same ending point. And so they end up fracturing everything, right? This choice to, to be God ends up fracturing everything. And here's what ends up happening after this part, as you can probably picture through this drawing, that sin enters the world. And then uh, Adam and Eve have uh, two sons, uh, Cain and Abel. And what ends up happening is we begin to start seeing what happens when we keep choosing to image cre uh, creation rather than the creator. And we keep seeing this thing starts like piling on one another. So uh, Cain ends up killing Abel, okay? And um, what's interesting is, uh, let me rephrase this. Let me go back just a second. When Adam and Eve 
do this, when they choose to eat from the tree of good and evil, um, God actually takes them and places them outside of the garden. And he puts them, and it talks about in, at the end of Genesis, it says like, he puts them like east. And on the east end of the garden, um, there are these cherubim that were then blocking kind of this, them getting back into the garden. So on the east side, they're, they're sent out to the east side. Cain and Abel come along. They're the sons of Adam and Eve. And uh, Cain kills Abel, and it says, I'm going to send him out east into all these different cities. And, um, and, and all this kind of violence starts happening. And what ends up happening is you guys know the story of the flood, right? And the story of Noah. And what ends up in the essence of that part of the story, and again, all, create, all civilizations would have had a, a flood story. But at the end, it's like God looks down. He's like, man, what has humanity done through violence and, and destruction? It's like, man, what, what, what has become? And he had pushed back all the realities, right? Um, sometimes people look at the flood story and they're like, man, I can't believe God wiped out all of humanity. And it's like, well, maybe, maybe we could also view it possibly as uh, God was holding back all the consequences of what humans were doing for so long. And then all of a sudden he was just like, you guys are not learning a lesson. You have to experience the consequences of your actions. If you, you know, your parent probably did that. If, or if you're a parent in here, you've done that with your kids. Um, if, uh, if you're a human in there, your parents probably did that with you at some point where they kind of held back certain things. And then at some point they're like, you know what, you do need to experience the consequences of your actions, right? And, and, and so we see this, it's like, oh, God is like letting things go. It's like, man, you guys have done all this. I've, I've been holding it back. I've been holding it back. I'm holding it back. But you, you're not learning anything. And so you need to experience the consequences of your actions. And then the story continues on. And we get to this one story um, called the Tower of Babel. And what's interesting is in the Atlantic, um, if you guys read that, there was a really good article about how the last 10 years have made us dumber. And uh, it actually references the Tower of Babel. The guy who writes is not a Christian, but he references the Tower of Babel. And in, in this story of the Tower of Babel, what we begin to see uh, in Genesis chapter 7, 8, 9, 10, and 11, um, the story that leads up to the Tower of Babel is violence continues to kind of reign supreme. Uh, there is this thirsting for power and wealth. Uh, this guy named Nimrod is actually this great warrior. And uh, he comes and he wants to build this incredible uh, tower. And look what it says in Genesis chapter 11. It says, now the whole world, whole world, had one language and a common speech. Now on the front end, that sounds good, right? It's like, whoa, unity. We did it, humans. We did it. But you realize it wasn't actually about the right kind of unity. It was about trying to image something and create something. Look what it says. As people moved eastward, so I just, when Adam and Eve were put outside of the garden, what, what, what side were they put outside? So they were separated from God. When Cain kills uh, Abel, he's sent out where? So there's something of just what the Bible does around this idea of east. And, and when it does this, it's like, it's this idea of like, in that manner, it's like you're, you're disconnected from God and you begin to image something else. So if you live in the east end of Richmond, you are in, no, I'm just kidding. So, so he says, they moved eastward and they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone. So I want you to remember this. That's technology, okay? And tar for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city, which is power, 
and wealth. With a tower that reaches to the heavens, right? So they're trying to make themselves like who? God. So that we make a name for ourselves. So they're imaging who? Themselves. Otherwise, we'll be scattered over the face of the earth. And so you see like, oh, through technology, through power and wealth, and through trying to image themselves, that the world is all about themselves. This is what they wanted to do. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. The Lord said, if as, um, if as one people speak in the same language, they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible. So he's like, listen, within the context of humanity, actually humanity can do a lot. But the problem is, is they always try to make it about themselves. And so he says, come, let us go down and confuse their languages so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there all over the earth and they stopped building the city. That is why it's called Babel, because, uh, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there the Lord scattered them. And so we begin to see that um, at the part of this story, we see technology, power and wealth, and essentially narcissism are the things and indicators of what humanity will do when it begins to try and image something else besides God. Now let me ask you this. Thousands and thousands of years later, what do we have? Technology, power and wealth, and narcissism. I mean, think about it. Technology, is social, who's social media about? Ourselves. We just, we just created the Tower of Babel just in our phones. You think about how everything gets like power and wealth, right? It's always about getting more, getting more, getting more, getting more. Narcissism, I don't know, Look at our politicians, some of them, not all. They get into positions of power. And it's like, oh wait, hold on a second. Maybe this story is just repeating itself. And maybe, and maybe, it's like, I was, when I was reading this this week, I was like, is God gonna scatter us again? Is he gonna let us experience the, the realities and the consequences of our actions? I don't know. But man, this story seems to keep repeating itself. And at the core of it, it's because we start imaging something that we're not supposed to image. We start focusing on things that we're not supposed to focus on. And we move away from this deep connection of what it means to image God and be, and be in his creation narrative. And we start imaging the things of this world and start building the Tower of Babel. And so when you start seeing this, it's like, okay, at the center of this then um, is this three-letter word of ego. The man so much is built on our ego. Um, how many of you guys have an ego? Yeah, right? We all do to some degree, and we use it in different ways, and we're going to see how it does. So in the, in the story of the scripture, so if you're not familiar with the Bible, what ends up happening after all, what I just touched on is literally the first 11 chapters of the Bible, and then there's just all this other stuff. And then at the hinge point of the Bible is this transition that happens with the life, death, and um, then eventual resurrection of Jesus. And Jesus, when he comes on the scene, he um, has these disciples. And then these disciples, after Jesus dies and he uh, is raised again, they start the church. They start this Christian movement. And, um, and these letters are written. 
And a lot of these letters, uh, um, I'm going to say a lot, there was a chunk of letters that were written by this guy named Paul, whose his story is fascinating. See, Paul was once someone who tried to kill Christians, and, um, and then he became one, and then became its biggest advocate. And so Paul um, transitions into writing all these letters to the early church, and we have um, evidence of a bunch of them. And, and I want you to see what Paul writes about what it means to image, because it becomes important for us to understand, of like, what does it actually look like to image God? What, how, how do we know? Like, what are ways that we can, we can do this and, and see this? And so in uh, Colossians chapter 1, Look what he says. He writes to these early Christians. He says this. The son. Who's the son? Jesus. Good job. Again, if you're new here, if you just say Jesus, you'd be right 90% of the time. The son is the image, look at that, of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. So Paul writes this and he's like, hey, you want to know what God is actually like? Look to Jesus. You, you want to know um, what God has always intended? Look to Jesus. You want to know how you're supposed to live your life? Look to the life and the teachings of Jesus. Make that the centering point of all that you are. Because, because Jesus is the image of God. Jesus is the perfect human example of what it means to image God. Jesus gives and serves as our example. So when we're like, hey, we need to follow Jesus, sometimes that sounds like a little bit out there, right? But it's like, well, why do we want to follow Jesus? There are a lot of reasons, but one of them is because when we begin to follow Jesus, we begin to image God and become the image of God that we were intended to always be. When we don't, we begin to image the creator. And one of the things that we talked about is when we do that, I'm sorry, we image creation. And when we do that, we're making this exchange. In that exchange, here's what we do. We're like, oh, I would rather, even though I know the truth of who Jesus is and what that means for my life, I would rather make the exchange from that truth for a lie. I, you know, oh, this creates like great boundaries for me in my life. I'd rather exchange those, those great boundaries that allows me for freedom. I'm going to make an exchange to be enslaved by something. So we start seeing that, oh, like, hold on a second. Then, then how am I supposed to live my life? It's like, that's why we, you know, if you're in church, I like to hear people say, like, I just, just follow what Jesus taught. Follow what Jesus taught. Like, if you start to follow what Jesus taught, well, here's what you're going to begin to see. Yeah, there's some practical stuff of like, it'll make your life better. Is that true? It will. There's no doubt about it. But there's something far deeper. It's like you begin to experience life how it was meant to be. You begin to experience the reality of who you were supposed to be and how you're supposed to like image God. And everything begins to change. So even when we see it in this way, if you kind of think about it, what does your life then look like? It's like, oh, as I begin to image and as I begin to follow the teachings of Jesus and understand what his life was like, then all of a sudden I'm going to start building his kingdom and not my own. So I'm no longer building the Tower of Babel. I'm a part of building the kingdom of God here on this earth. Two very radical different things. In Colossians chapter 2, um, Paul actually says this. He continues on. I don't know why it's not working today. He says this. So then... Just as you received Christ Jesus, continue to live your lives 
in him. Um, Paul will say this a lot. He'll, he'll say things like, you are, you are raised with Christ. There, there's this language that to follow Jesus is this idea that you're, like, you're, you're like in him. Like there's this deep connection that's part of your life. And he says this, you're rooted and built up in him. You're strengthened in the faith as you were taught and you're overflowing with thankfulness. And so what happens is we begin to image God. These things start like showing up in our lives. So when we're singing a song about this is the story I'll tell, it's like, what are we saying? That in the midst of difficult times of suffering and pain and everything, and we, we experience the realities of that pain and that suffering. We experience all those things, but, but we as image bearers are standing here being like, my God did not fail. Why? Because I was rooted and built up in Jesus. And I know the reality of who he is. You see, um, we have to question what we anchor our lives to. And we often will see what our lives are anchored to when our life isn't going so well. And so we said, no, 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 I'm gonna gonna anchor myself, I'm gonna be rooted and built up in Jesus, in him, that that's what I'm anchoring my whole life to. Because nothing else, nothing else offers the same thing. Nothing else else can possibly give me the the same reality um, that Jesus can. So now, you might be asking, well, well, what are the life and teachings of Jesus? So I want you to pull out your phones, and here's a part of your participation. I want you to see something here. Because when it comes to imaging God, we'll begin to see some descriptions, right? And so here's what I want you guys to do. Yeah, what are words that describe the life and teachings of Jesus? So just keep answering, and I just want you to see this. And don't be the person that writes something inappropriate. Like, don't be like, oh, penis. Don't do that. (laughs) I took away your joke. All right, so. I mean, look at these words that are up there. Forgiveness and love and grace, truth and gentleness, mercy. There's an element of fun. There's kingdom. There's compassion. There's humility. There's revolutionary. There's redemption. There's salvation. There's healing. There's wonder. There's life-changing. There's honesty. All right, let's stop. If you're typing, stop. Because hopefully it'll pause at some point. But there's renewal. There's freedom. There's security. There's a service. There's obedience. There's integrity. There's forgiveness. There's sacrifice. There's boundaries. There's diversity. Gentle and lonely. There's generosity. There's a fullness. I mean, think about these descriptions that you guys are saying. And so we begin to see in something like this, it's like, oh, this is actually what it means to follow Jesus. This is what it begins to mean to be made in the image of God and be one of his representatives. That our life starts looking like this. That this is what we begin to see. This is what we begin to experience. This is supposed to be like who we are. When we image him, this is what comes out of us. 
And let me ask you, would that be better? Would your life have more freedom and fullness? Would the world be a better place? My guess is yes. Would your relationships take a whole different shape? Yes. Would your view of who you are be radically different? Yup. And things start dramatically changing because your life starts looking like this, begins to image the teachings and the life of who Jesus is. When I was thinking about and anticipating this word cloud, um, I was reminded of this guy uh, named David who had Down syndrome. And you get glimpses of, of God sometimes that are startling. And um, this guy, David, he changed uh, my perspective on who God is. And here's why. When I, I was around David, um, he was the first adult with Down syndrome that I actually had been around a lot. And um, he, we were at the same church. And uh, he worshiped in a way that I was like, oh, I wish I could worship with that kind of freedom. He had a joy about him in a way that I was like, mm, I wonder if I'll ever discover that kind of joy. He had a life about him and a freedom about him with people that I wondered, I wonder if I'll be able to ever see people like David sees people. You know, and so often I was thinking about how, uh, was it two or three years ago, I remember reading an article how in Norway they were celebrating that they had eliminated Down syndrome. And they eliminated it, obviously, through eliminating the babies that had Down syndrome. And it made me think, whoa, they're celebrating losing an image bearer of God. And they're celebrating losing um, a window into the purity and reality of an, the image of God that I think we could only see through folks like David. I realized so much of being around David, like what was lacking in me. And what's interesting is so often um, we can look at someone like David and see something that he's lacking. But the truth is, is in those moments when we begin to take a step back and we see people with the dignity that we're supposed to see people, they're like, oh, there's some unique giftings there in David. There's some things in David that are unbelievably challenging to me that um, to this day, and this is 12 years later now at this point, I, I don't worship yet like he did. I don't have that, that freedom that he, and that connection that he just seemed to have. I don't know that I see life yet in the way David saw life and people. And you get so many of these, and when I was thinking about this, I was like, man, he just embodied so many of those in such a powerful and humbling way to, to be around. You know, ultimately, when we see the teachings of Jesus and we see this, here's how I started thinking about it this week, that Jesus wasn't teaching what it takes to get into heaven. He was revealing what it means to be fully human. And I think that sometimes the big issue with us is that we choose um, 
our ego over Jesus. And we're going to look at this in just a second. We choose to anchor our lives to something else besides Jesus. We choose um, a whole other way. And we're not even fully human like we could be. Paul actually talks about this, and I wanna, I'm going to close with this. But Paul talks about this in another letter to the church at Ephesus. And he says, I want you to walk by the Spirit, which just means you're in step with the Spirit. You're connected. You have this deep kind of connection with God. And you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. The word for flesh there, uh, uh, another way to think about it is actually ego. So for the flesh, or so for the ego, desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other. So like our ego is in conflict with the spirit. He says, so that you are not to do whatever you want, but if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the flesh, the acts of our ego are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like, which just means if I haven't mentioned it, it's anything like what I just mentioned. And I warn you, as I did before, that those who will live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. And here's what he's saying there. You won't inherit what it means to be fully human. You won't inherit the realities of experiencing the kingdom of God in your life if we just keep choosing our ego and our flesh. What is, how does the false self work? So um, one of the ways that um, guys like Richard Rohr and some other folks like him talk about this and, and is this idea that you have a true self and a false self. To be your true self is like this idea of imaging God and imaging God well and tapping into those realities, and tapping into who you were created to be, and, and there's your false self, and their false self is when you choose your ego, when you choose your flesh, you have mixed motives, you shape your own identity, you have a staged personality, right? You have momentary, you just long for momentary euphoria. Then you have promises, you promise the things that it can't deliver. I mean, your false self will always say, <laughs> It'll promise you something. If you just choose this way, I promise you'll have, it's like, just choose money. Let's just use that one. Just choose money. You get really greedy. And I promise you'll feel fine. And all of a sudden you get all the money you ever want and you realize what? Oh, I just promised something they can't deliver. And so that's what our false self begins to do. And so I also wrote down, if you like lists, you just take a picture of it. But I wrote down some ways that maybe this comes out of us as our false self. Your refusal to create boundaries in spite of truth, meaning you know it's bad for you, yet you refuse to create the boundary for it. You know, um, again, choose the laundry list of things. Pornography, greed, and lust, whatever, um, lying, hanging out with that person, dating that person. Um, whatever, those friends, whatever. Like you know, in spite of all the truth that tells you all your regrets are associated with this type of behavior or this person, there's a refusal to actually create boundaries shows you're choosing your false self. Um, you have a lack of empathy towards others. Like Paul constantly says that, you know, when you're overflowing with thankfulness, one of the things that comes out of us is like this genuine love and empathy for others it means you're connected with the Spirit of God. You associate success with identity. You're pointing out faults of others. Um, People love to do this once they start doing personality tests. I don't know if you ever noticed this. It's like if you took the Enneagram, they'll start doing things like this. Oh, you're such a four. That's why you're doing that. Because now I know stuff and so I'm going to judge you on that. Right? Like that's what people do. But you become judgmental of people just because you got a little bit of knowledge. 
You can't handle critique. You don't understand limits uh, or only live for the next moment. You have a savior complex, which means you're just helping people to feel significant. You're perfectionist or controlling. You're passive aggressive. You bully people to get your way. And you have a lack of contentment and freedom. Here's the, here's the reality. Our false self will never allow us to be our full self. And so um, I'm going to ask you uh, to pull out your phones one more time. Because I want you to see something else before we sing this last song. Here's that, let me put the last question up there. What areas of your life are you choosing your ego over Jesus? And I just, this is a moment of just you guys sharing with everyone else. Now, no one's going to know. We're not like tracking this. But I just want you to see it. Of where people are choosing their false self. So we've got work and marriage and status and comparison, controlling and friendships, parenting, social media, money, success, at school, with lust, perfectionism, conflict at work, with their time, on Twitter, with intimacy, with anger, nutrition, technology. And so we begin to see uh, with TV, with kids, I mean, all these things, right? The reason why I wanted you guys to see this is so that you know that you're not alone in this. Here's the reality. Um, every single person in this room has a holy identity. And the question is, is whether or not you want to engage it. And to see life how God has always wanted you to see life. To be an image bearer in the way that he's always designed us to be. To anchor your life to him. You see, every single day we make a choice. We can choose to experience the fullness of the blessing and imaging of Jesus or not. We can choose to um, experience life or not. We can choose uh, to experience our true self or not. We can choose to see ourselves of having purpose and a people of hope or not. We make that choice. We make a choice to anchor our lives to something. And the question is, what is that something? And so you guys can bow your heads and then the band's going to get ready here to just sing one more song. So God, this morning, um, I pray that we would come to grips with what we've been choosing. Not out of guilt or shame, but the reality of the hope that we have in you. To understand the grace we have in you, um, the freedom we have in you. God, I pray we would be uh, honest with ourselves about what we're choosing, our false self or the true self in you.
We'll never be perfect at it. No doubt about that. But we can all choose to anchor our lives to something. And I pray, God, that we will choose to anchor our lives to you. Can we stand and sing this last song?